The country of Qatar is unusual in many ways, but one of the most overt is that of its population of around 2.9 million people. Only about 300,000 of those are native Qataris, while the other 2.6 million or so are expats, or migrant workers, from other countries who have decided to settle in the area either temporarily or permanently. Located on a small sliver of a peninsula, sharing a land border with Saudi Arabia, but otherwise surrounded by the Persian Gulf, Qatar's capital and largest city is Doha, a coastal city that contains about 650,000 of the country's population. Part of what makes Qatar so appealing to so many expats in particular, many of whom could live anywhere on the planet, is that it's a very wealthy and well-maintained part of the world. The maintenance performed by that other collection of non-locals, the migrant workers. Qatar ranks fourth in the world in GDP per capita in terms of purchasing power parity and comes in at sixth in the world using the nominal gross national income per capita ranking system, according to the World Bank. They're up near the top of the United Nations Human Development Index for the Middle Eastern region, and they're considered to be a high-income economy based on the World Bank's metrics for such things. So they're up there with the United States, Australia, Cyprus, Denmark, in that locals make above a certain threshold, $12,525 a year in 2019, which also means they're generally referred to as a first world or developed country, depending on the terminology used and in which context that terminology is being applied. All of which is to say that Qatar, despite being one of the smallest countries in the world in terms of geography, they're about 80% the size of the U.S. state of Connecticut, and about the same size, give or take, as the Gambia and Jamaica, despite that geographic concision, they're doing okay economically. And that wealth is predicated, as is the case with many countries in the region, on fossil fuel resources. In their case, the third largest natural gas and 13th largest oil reserves in the world. Those vast reserves have kept the House of Althani, which has been the ruling monarchical dynasty of Qatar since 1868, in power over an officially Muslim nation with a constitution that was passed in 2003, a well-educated populace, a Sharia law-based legal system that's flexible enough that Qatar is often referred to as the Middle East for beginners in the travel industry, and a slew of influential internationally operating corporations and organizations, among them Qatar Airways and the news organization Al Jazeera, the former of which is one of the world's largest airlines by destination, and the latter of which is a remarkably well-regarded news entity, considering it's based in a country with a Freedom House ranking of not free, which means the local journalism ecosystem is essentially just propaganda. As with its economy, then, Qatar's level of influence far outshines its geographic and population-based size. It has cultural and economic heft, both regionally and internationally, and in some cases, that heft gets it into trouble with its neighbors. 
There's been an ongoing, relatively non-militarized conflict between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, for instance, that's sometimes referred to as the Second Arab Cold War. This thus far cold conflict has been catalyzed by many things, but it seems to be mostly the consequence of Qatar's use of Al Jazeera to spread information, often legitimate information, that their Middle Eastern neighbors would prefer wasn't spread or even discussed. Alongside the Qatari support of Iran, which is Saudi Arabia's key diplomatic and military rival in the region, and the Qatari support, in the past at least, of the Muslim Brotherhood, and more recently, of the so-called Arab Spring movement, which led to quite a lot of discomfort for many of their neighbors back in the early 2010s. This ongoing Cold War heated up a bit in mid-2017, when Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt all cut diplomatic ties with Qatar, effectively locking down the country's borders, closing off most nearby airspace for their use, and effectively isolating them from allies, economic opportunities, and some types of supplies and raw materials. This diplomatic and physical blockade was ostensibly the consequence of Qatar failing to agree to the terms of an ultimatum leveled by the far larger Saudi Arabia. But these terms included demands to cut off all ties with their ally, Iran, shut down their Al Jazeera network, and stop funding terrorist organizations. So some of these demands were super vague, and some were tantamount to allowing a neighboring nation to manage their economy, media ecosystem, and diplomacy. So they, perhaps understandably, declined. To this day, as a result of that declination, a practical blockage remains in place for all of Qatar's land borders and many of their air and oceanic entrances and exits as well. They remain diplomatically isolated by many countries worldwide, including many of the largest and most influential countries in the world, not just their regional neighbors. And although there's word that there could be a thawing of this freeze-out in the near future, as a consequence of the 2020 elections in the United States, which would see Donald Trump, who was a big proponent of this blockade and these diplomatic efforts, leaving presidential office, the future of this region and its entangled relationships is still very much up in the air. And that's a troublesome prospect, considering what Qatar has planned in 2022. What I'd like to talk about today is the 2022 FIFA World Cup, sports diplomacy, and how and why a petrostate is planning a carbon-neutral international sporting event. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The geopolitical situation in the region that is today often referred to as the Middle East is complex. This is something that you could probably always have said, even during periods where much of it was unified under a caliphate or a secular ruler who managed to wrangle the many oftentimes at odds local groups into some kind of whole that was capable of working together toward common ends. But it's perhaps especially true now, at a moment in which the region is still fractured and reeling from the consequences of the U.S.-led wars thereabouts in the 80s through today, pretty much continuously, 
and a moment in which a bipolar power structure has arisen, with Iran and their political gravity in one corner, and just across the border, Saudi Arabia and their allies in the other. Very superficially, it's possible to view what is happening in that region right now, in the final days of 2020, headed into 2021, as the consequence of that larger two-nation power struggle, combined with various proxy conflicts, many of which stem from that larger struggle, but some of which have been catalyzed, funded, and or perpetuated by outside forces, including the U.S., but many other nations with interests in the area as well and to the complexities that arise within a region where global-scale power and the resources to leverage it have only really arisen in recent history. Petroleum in this region has been a game-changing, abundant natural resource that has upended previous dynamics, minted a slew of not just locally influential, but globally influential monarchs and other sorts of leaders, and led to the strange situation in which we find ourselves now, where all these resources and all that power is seemingly on the way out. Not today, perhaps, but in a few decades, oil is expected to be something of a pariah substance. So the question of whether to extract and sell as much of it as possible now, or to reinvest in cleaner energy and other income sources immediately, is on the minds of more or less everyone in the Middle East at the moment. But backing up to look once more at that conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Many of the issues Qatar faces right now are a direct consequence of their partnership with Iran and similar entities, like the Muslim Brotherhood and other highly controversial groups that the international community is none too fond of, but which Qatar finds some value in supporting financially and at times by providing them with a physical safe haven. All that in mind, the article I'd like to unspool today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled... Qatar enacts minimum wage and worker reforms as World Cup nears. Qatar, alongside other criticisms they receive for supporting unpopular groups, including, in some cases, terrorism-linked groups, and alongside the myriad issues they face as a consequence of their ongoing relationship with Iran, is also often held up as an example of an abusive, corrupt, and overall socially backward place. To be fair, some of those accusations could be applied to a broad swath of the world, where social concepts like the right to marry whomever you choose and the ability to participate in society the same way others do is not a given, and where particularly unequal economic models within the government and within the market flourish. In Qatar, though, because their legal system is based on Sharia law, drinking is not allowed in public. Homosexuality is illegal, and migrant workers are treated by those who employ them, according to investigations done by several different human rights organizations, as slave laborers, at times not being paid, being denied food and water, and having their identity papers, including their passports, taken away so that they can't flee their employers. And these issues are particularly pressing in the wake of the country having won the right to host the 2022 FIFA World Cup, an international football 
soccer, if you live in the United States, event that often pulls in tens of billions of cumulative views, hundreds of millions of simultaneous real-time viewers for any individual match, and quite a lot of prestige and cultural amplification for the host countries of these events. It's a very, very big deal. This is considered, then, to be an especially high-stakes moment for Qatar, and arguably for the region as a whole, because as I mentioned earlier, the petroleum-based golden goose likely won't lay eggs for much longer, at least not to the same degree and to the same economic benefit as before, and many governments in the Middle East are betting that they can segue into being international players that are not reliant on natural resources, in part by attracting new investment from elsewhere, and in part by attracting tourists and wealthy expats to their countries. Thus, as noted in this piece, Qatar is making some adjustments to the way that they do things, in an attempt to counter the prevailing image that they've presented to the world in recent decades, and to position themselves as a nation of the future a place where investments and tourists will be well-tended and spendy expats will want to put down roots, and all of this managed in an environment that is friendly to human rights, as opposed to being built on the back of some kind of slavery-like system. The new worker-related rules will allow migrant workers to take new jobs without requiring permission from their current employers, which until now has been one of the aforementioned slave labor-like issues the government has allowed to flourish. Workers who change jobs will be guaranteed end-of-service payments and will have their travel back to their home countries paid for, as long as they adhere to the law in terms of giving their employer sufficient time and written notice of their intentions. And the guaranteed salary that workers can expect will add up to 1,000 Qatari rials, which is around $272 US per month, alongside a stipend for room and board of 500 and 300 rials per month, respectively. This new universal minimum wage will supposedly be permanent, rather than just for show leading up to this big international event and existing employers will have six months to bring their contracts into alignment with this new law. The Qatari government has also committed to enforcing existing labor protections that are technically already on the books, but which haven't been particularly well implemented and executed in the past. Important to note here is that, although a significant step in the right direction, and a collection of moves that, if implemented as planned, will put Qatar's employment market decently far ahead of many of their local competitors, especially for migrant labor, it will still be a while before all of these laws and regulations go into full effect. Some of them may be intentionally overlooked by employers, as many of them are now, with those employers at times choosing to just pay the fees associated with non-compliance, rather than spending, in some cases, more by adjusting to this new reality. And these laws still don't bring migrant workers' financial situation anywhere near that of the massively more wealthy Qatari citizenry. Economic disparity in the region will remain incredibly high, with the gap between the haves and the have-nots ranking as one of the highest anywhere on the planet. That said, this move is arguably still significant and heartening for those who suffer under the current migrant employment paradigm in the region, 
and for those who just want to see more worker protections around the world. This de facto caste system isn't the only one of its kind in its world or in the region, but it's one less to worry about in the future. So long as everything goes according to plan, and these rules stick around post-World Cup, as the government says they will. Another major shift being made by Qatar in the lead-up to this event is the promise of a carbon-neutral World Cup, something that would be difficult to manage for any country at this point in the carbon neutrality curve, as the world segues away from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of energy, with most countries reaching their estimated goals by the middle of the 21st century. But perhaps even more so for a country like Qatar, which is located in a desert climate zone, and thus will require substantially more energy just to keep attendees and players at a reasonable temperature during the events but also for a country that is so heavily dependent on fossil fuels, currently at least, to generate the wealth that they are spending on this event and all of its many accoutrements. To partially address that first concern, the FIFA task force, which is in charge of deliberating and deciding on such things, opted to move the event from its usual play period of June and July to the cooler months of November and December. This won't entirely solve the temperature problem, and it creates a few new problems due to the rearrangements that will be necessary to account for the shift in game dates, but it should help to lower base temperatures, which will then mean lower energy costs just to keep everybody cool, and will probably result in a far more pleasant overall experience for visitors from around the world who wouldn't be as accustomed to the extreme heat that is common in the region in June and July. That lower AC bill seems likely to help with the climate neutrality aim as well, but it doesn't get anywhere near to fully counteracting the many sources of greenhouse gas emissions that will result from the holding of this event in this part of the world. And that's true of the more obvious sources, like vehicles used to transport visitors and players, the energy utilized to keep the lights on, and infrastructure functioning, the massive amounts of CO2 generated while constructing new buildings and roads, repairing things, and increasing their temporary housing capacity, and the sprawling emissions bill that will result from importing all the necessary resources, even things like food and water, to keep all those visitors happy and enjoying themselves. The Qatari government, the Gulf Organization for Research and Development, of which Qatar is a part, and the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy, which is part of FIFA's larger organizational body, are working together to figure out which aspects of this event they can make more sustainable. By using electric shuttles, their batteries charged by solar power, to get people to and from the airport, for instance, and which elements they will have to counter with carbon drawdown projects, which would basically mean they emit fossil fuels like they normally would, but then pay to fund the removal of equal amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere, either through third-party businesses that specialize in such things, or through their own projects established to do the same. As of December 2020, they've already started work on 25 carbon drawdown projects of their own, which should have the dual benefit of making the air cleaner for visitors attending the event, while also contributing to the overall drawdown bill that they'll need to cover when the event is finished and everyone has gone back home. They are also 
working with the United Nations to envision and implement these sorts of projects and build a template that can then be utilized for other large sporting events, which would be wonderful, as future event planners then wouldn't need to do as much legwork and experimentation to achieve similar ends moving forward. But it would also be kind of a win for Qatar, because they would be able to claim a sort of cultural and R&D victory, portraying themselves as innovators in this space. And perhaps rightfully so. One more component of this construction effort is the development of what's called the Global Sustainability Assessment System, or GSAS, which is meant to serve as a means of measuring ecological performance of various structures and systems, focusing initially on those being built in the Middle East and North Africa, but eventually, potentially, elsewhere as well. This is still a new system, so we don't have a whole lot to go on yet in terms of ascertaining how legit it will turn out to be and how effective it will be in terms of providing frameworks and metrics for builders, urban planners, and even event planners to use to clock their sustainability levels and to compare options when setting such things up in the future. It does bode well that multiple entities and superstructural organizations have bought into this event and its planning, alongside the Qatari government, though, because that implies that there will be a higher level of seriousness when it comes to actually making this thing sustainable, because all of their reputations are on the line. That doesn't mean this will automatically be a fully legitimate act without any hand waviness and greenwashing. That sort of thing is almost expected at some level when a government entity commits to sustainability-related moves that are expensive, and which thus often conflict with other goals that they also hold dear, like conflicting economic decisions that incentivize spending less and earning more, even when those decisions aren't as green as they might otherwise be. It does mean that the bias will likely be more in the middle, or even slant a bit towards sustainability, over and alongside other goals, though, which is heartening. It will be interesting to see how the secondary and tertiary carbon costs of this sort of event are tabulated, though, as it's difficult, but relatively straightforward, to tally up the cost of all the planes flying into a local airport above the normal levels of traffic, for instance, and then to calculate the quantity of emissions that need to be dealt with to account for that specific block of expenditures. But it's a lot more complicated to then tally up the costs of repairing that infrastructure after the increased use, the cost of feeding all those people and shipping all of the food used to feed them, and the cost of the packaging on that food, and the carbon costs of manufacturing that packaging and the food itself and the cost of the wealth used to pay for all of those other expenses, because again, a lot of the money sloshing around in the Qatari economy comes from their oil wells. So how do we quantify those costs on top of the other costs that result from how that wealth is spent? This event is controversial for many reasons, including the fact that some people and entities think the hosting rights were more or less bought from the FIFA higher-ups by the Qatari government for national branding purposes. There are allegations of corrupt FIFA officials, of bribery by the Qatari building committee, of threats leveled against whistleblowers who noted these bribes and corruption, and of individuals who play a role in making these decisions being investigated by the FBI for illicit funds that appeared in their bank accounts, 
apparently put there by someone connected to the Qatari government. That said, there is some precedent for these sorts of national visibility amplifiers, which help governments put their country on the map in a new way, encouraging those same governments to try out new behaviors, often those that are more widely acceptable to more of the world, and often those that are more human rights-centric as nations with a higher public profile that don't toe the line in that regard are more likely to be ignored, boycotted, or otherwise punished by their wealthy, internationally prominent and important peers, both countries and individuals that they might someday come to rely on as they shift away from fossil fuels. This might be an event tied to all sorts of corrupt behavior, in other words, but it could also be the harbinger of long-lasting, generally positive changes in the shape of oil wealth being converted into new templates for sustainable, large-scale events, and examples of better labor laws alongside the, hopefully, positive consequences of implementing them in a part of the world that has been slow to adopt anything of that sort, maybe, in part at least, due to a lack of examples as to why they should even consider doing so. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Metazoa, Animal Life and the Birth of the Mind, by Peter Godfrey Smith. This is a science book that starts at the bottom and moves up to the top the top in terms of consciousness and cognition and what we would recognize as intelligent beings, but then how that perception is maybe fuzzy and or flawed. And it's written by a guy who wrote another book about the octopus, and he references the octopus several times in this book as well, I think rightfully, because there are so many creatures on Earth, not even trying to look at other planets and potential other ecosystems that might exist out there somewhere, and thus other types of intelligence that we might have to deal with at some point. There are so many different types of cognition already happening here around us that we know about and that we can already measure to a certain degree, but even the language that we use doesn't agree about what these different levels or hierarchies, if you will, of intelligence or cognition or consciousness mean. And this book argues in many different ways, and with a very soft argument, it doesn't pressure you to believe in any particular direction, that it is possible for something to have a type of awareness or cognition without it necessarily being intelligent or conscious or sentient in a way that we might recognize it in other human beings or even animals that we interact with on a regular basis. There's a whole lot of very good food for thought in this book, and you learn quite a bit about interesting scientific concepts. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Metazoa by Peter Godfrey Smith. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can find my daily curating the news style newsletter at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. 
Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.